Hello. This is episode 48 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Social capital is the accumulated store of shared identity, value systems, cultural norms, uh, trust, and rules that allow large and complex societies to function smoothly. The exact mix of these factors eludes description. It's by nature intangible, and it's so foundational to society that it's difficult to even recognize within one's own culture. It's immensely valuable and extremely fragile. Uh, Social capital, like most good things, is hard to save up and easy to spend down. Uh, The only thing that really builds up social capital is time. Uh, There's no substitute for the slow formation of culture and values over generations. Uh, Attempts to wrench society into a new mold via either totalitarian control or freewheeling revolution, which were common in the 20th century, inevitably lead to chaos and violence. Uh, This is because you cannot accelerate the development of something that's so organic. This suggests in turn that most revolutions are, that are not the accumulation of, uh, I apologize, culmination of deep already present social trends are doomed to failure. History bears this out. Uh, Different societies have different levels of social capital and so react to change differently. The longer that things have been the way that they are in a society, the more social capital it has. This makes real change harder to implement, but more sustainable and less destructive when it happens. Uh, Japan, for example, has had the same monarchy and spiritual traditions for almost 2,000 years. It took a world war to fully strip it of its militaristic tendencies. But the monarchy survives today and the country is stable, prosperous, and well-governed despite the political 180. Most African states, meanwhile, have no traditions of unity, uh, national identity, or shared culture. Change is easier, with many flipping from capitalist to communist and back again within the space of a few years in the 20th century, but it is bought at the cost of immense suffering and social dislocation. Uh, Every attempted major revolution or change spends social capital. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Ultimately, that's what it's there for. Uh, to allow a society to adapt to changing circumstances without the need to burn everything down. Problems arise, however, when too much happens too fast, or when social capital is squandered on dead-end utopian projects. The 20th century was the zenith of irresponsible social capital use, as various ideologies all sprang up and burned it for their pet projects at the same time. Most, like the great communist and fascist projects, failed miserably and left nothing but destruction and suspicious, cynical societies in their wakes. Extreme cultural individualism, which currently holds sway over most of the West, can have the same effect. As the West runs out of social capital, it will become increasingly difficult to govern. Societies with low social capital struggle with a host of related issues. Their citizens distrust and resent each other. Difficult, uh, different political factions fail to even understand where the other side is coming from. Uh, law and order become difficult to maintain as large segments of the population come to view authority as illegitimate, and political squabbles become more debilitating. Eventually, the society collapses into bankruptcy, so to speak. Uh, completely alienated, it's unable to do anything but go limp, as it's consumed from internal conflict and destroyed from without. This is a very long process, but some of those trends are already immediately recognizable in our political climate. Uh, as, a, as an aside, this doesn't mean that civil war is inevitable. I've, I've talked about this multiple times on my page. Um, I think that uh, a variety of factors, including uh, do-what-feels-good culture, 
the easy availability of stupefying entertainment and the aging of Western society make armed conflict very unlikely. Uh, many young people in the West can't even comprehend the idea of personal sacrifice for a greater good, which obviously precludes dying in a war. The more likely outcome is decades or even centuries of material, materially comfortable decadence, which is arguably an even more grim fate. Uh, the generation of 68 has been able to engage in a sort of indefinite iconoclastic adolescence because it inherited a strong and self-confident culture that had just recently emerged from the crucible of global war. As they pass away, they leave behind a culture that is much weaker, uh, self-doubting, fragmented, and aesthetically threadbare, content to smash things they never really got around to the hard work of building a new establishment, and now we're paying the price. The problem will get worse before it gets better, as both sides of the aisle grapple with their own versions of the hedonistic, nihilistic, I.O. society, nothing demon. Whichever side emerges from that conflict with a more mature and communalistic mindset will dictate our direction as we get started on the hard work of rebuilding. Uh, to that effect, there is no political solution. Political efforts to recharge social capital will, by definition, just make things worse. The impetus needs to come from the responsible actions of millions of committed people. This will be long, difficult work. It will involve acts of discipline, spiritual seeking, and self-denial that do not fit the Star Wars mode of heroism, but because of their primate and personal nature are even more impressive. The moment demands from us a heroism that is quieter and humbler than that of our grandparents. It is the heroism of being kind to your neighbors even as they hate you, of being a good child and an even better parent, of participating in the many little traditions that make local life so meaningful and fulfilling. It's a heroism of building a better future, not destroying a worse past. It is, in the last analysis, the heroism of healing. Uh, and then I typically end my post with a quote. Uh, this one is from Ernest Hemingway, um, from, from whom the bell tolls, as I recall. Uh, the world is a fine place and worth the fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it. And that was a piece from today's guest, a piece that I could spend four hours of a podcast discussing and dissecting alone, a piece from a man who goes by the moniker Totally Not Anacreon, a tongue-in-cheek moniker due to the fact that if you look up the name Anacreon, you'll understand that it's antithetical with the kind of content that he so masterfully creates. He's a bit younger than you might expect, but he has an up-close view on the American political system. He has quite a bit of wisdom from the well-read background that he possessed while developing more idealistic beliefs at a younger age, but now, upon reaching the realities of said American political system, is writing eloquent and clear courses of action for people to take said ideals and apply them more practically, locally, and in day-to-day -day life in general. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And thank you for that introduction. It was very generous. I'd say it's more accurate, to be honest, because, I mean, I, some of you got chills while you're reading that piece, and I've had a lot of fantastic guests with a lot of great things to say, but I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can say that I've gotten chills during a, a piece like that before. Because you're clearly defining a dynamic that pertains to both the past and the present and the somewhat harrowing but most likely bright future of this country and I guess the Western world in general. 
Uh, yeah, and I mean, this was this was sort of the the culmination of a lot of what was on my page, um, and so that was why I selected it to read. I think you know, to the extent that I sort of have a mission statement, um, it's encapsulated in in the end of this piece. Um, I think, um, well, you know, as I'm as I'm sure you can tell from my page, I'm very fascinated by macro level kind of looking at political trends. I don't think that that the solution will be. Um, will be found there. Um, and I think that, that people often um, fall into this kind of trap where they see that the, the problems that afflict us are, are so pervasive that only kind of a wholesale movement or revolution can, can rid us of them. Um, when in reality, it's exactly that kind of thinking, I think, that, that got us into this mess to begin with. Yeah, it's a sort of erratic quick fix on a grand scale that really isn't a quick fix at all it's just a grand flash of more damage to our already problematic situation yes precisely um it's, it's very difficult to get a revolution right i think is, is the upshot if you if you could <laughs> if you could draw one lesson from the 20th century maybe that would be it yeah and i don't think you need to look too long to find an example of that on any continent for that matter, except maybe Oceania. But I'm sure someone could probably find a smaller scale war, revolution, or conflict that typically flies under the radar when discussing this sort of thing. I have so many questions for you, and I find myself unsure of where to start. Uh, why don't we start with why the fascination with the macro? Because I think one of the reasons I love your page so much is it's kind of the opposite of mine. I'm typically more concerned and fascinated with individuals and the war within the mind being the reflection of one's life. Not so much the grand strategy standpoint or the overall looking at the big picture, but that seems to be your wheelhouse. When did that fascination start in your life? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, and I guess I would have to say that, that sort of my, my Joker origin story uh, when, it, when it comes to, to the macro is um, being given like an encyclopedia of Roman history when I was when I was nine or ten years old. And um, I, I mean, it was a hardcover book and I read it uh, until it like fell apart. And then I got a new copy, an identical copy and just read that one. Um, and so I suppose, <laughs> suppose I share that with a lot of people out there, an unhealthy fascination with ancient Rome. Um, and from there, you know, I, I went down the rabbit hole. I, I read Gibbon. Um, and Augustine, um, and it began to seem to me um, that uh, you know you can the, the the most meaningful and compelling stories that are written um, about about the human condition are they're not found necessarily in literature, but instead you know in our history. Um, and I think that there's nothing there's nothing more true in a sense, and nothing more authentic. Um, than watching people grapple with, with, with the world around them. I mean, I think I put the city of God by St. Augustine, um, uh, you know, up, up in the firmament of, of the Western literary tradition. And it was written, you know, explicitly as a response to the sack of Rome. Um, and so to that extent, um, you know, that was that was sort of the genesis of, of my political consciousness. And from there, you know, I've, I've become as as, you know, people who look at my page will quickly find kind of a staunch localist. Um, 
but that was that was where it started and so that's 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 still where my interests lie you know old habits die hard mm. yeah i mean that's there's again in that piece you defined every sort of low to mid to high level overarching dynamic that is currently plaguing this country and the western world but not only that an intro to the idea that it's both micro and macro it takes millions of people, like you said, making these small decisions with their everyday lives with some kind of loose but concrete enough ideology that will have people buy in to the progress of themselves that won't necessarily be some kind of communist state where they have no identity and say I am no one and live in brutalist architecture pods. No. It's saying this is my life. This is what I do day to day. This is my family. I'm contributing in a net positive, not because there's some state breathing down my throat, but because it's for the greater good. Um, that's a very tall order <laughs> to state, but but it is what it is. Yeah, and it's I mean it's fair um, to say that it's a tall order um, because it's you know as I'm sure anybody who has you tried to adopt like a healthy new habit um, like going to the gym or cutting out of food or you know it's november right now a lot of people are are abstaining from from masturbation like it's 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 very difficult to to do make these small decisions um because you can't really see the payoff um and sort of the 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 bleakest thing about what i'm saying to a lot of people who i've talked to is that you know it may not be we might not be alive to really see the payoff um because there's just there's no way to rush accumulating social capital um i mean it's easy it's easier to do it once everything is already burned down um but that also tends to be a pretty unpleasant experience i think there's a growing restlessness in people because they really want that conflict because what you mentioned too about the 68ers there was a growing american identity after world war ii and we can get into how truly detrimental World War One and World War Two really were for the world. But in America, at least, it's seen as this huge coming out party. Because in America, all the manufacturing remained intact, while other hubs of manufacturing in Europe and Asia were just completely decimated. And the economy was already thriving due to a wartime economy. So, and to the United States, and of course across the way, uh, the Soviet Union as the world's two new superpowers, but of course, really the American coming out party. What's fascinating to me is despite that shared victory amongst the entire American people and the growth of the baby boomers, you still had this generation in the 68ers that turned to hedonism almost immediately, which quickly turned into this urge to destroy everything, not because they had a real reason to destroy anything, because, but they, because they didn't have a purpose for their generation really at all. And therefore found like a series of small reasons to destroy due to this lack of purpose. And from not really knowing what to do with all the prosperity of the post-World War II era. So it's, so it's fascinating that most people are longing for this kind of conflict to come out stronger on the other side, but most wouldn't even know what to do with the peace right after the war, so to speak. Uh, do you foresee any potential way, and I'm completely sort of just creating this 
false scenario that if we were to get out of victory of a major conflict like World War II now, what on a macro scale could prevent that mass hedonistic suicide of a society? <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I, I thought about it for, for you, you know, extensively. Um, because sort of the post-war world is the, you know, the baseline way of thinking about things now. Um, and really, that was just an immensely lucky moment for the United States. As you said, our closest economic competitors had all been, you know, bombed to hell. Um, and it was really just us and the Soviet Union, which was a horribly run um, central planned economy, which, which had also suffered extensive damage during the war. Um, mm -hmm. And so the economic growth and and the um, the level of equality, economic equality that we saw in the post-war years was really an exception um, as opposed to a norm. Um, but I think I think I would I would I, ha I haven't considered necessarily that that scenario because I take issue with the premise, which is that we would emerge from another global conflict victorious. I think that that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, one of the key takeaways from the pandemic is that we, we, we won't, I mean, this would, that would be like the, the way in which all of our systemic faults have been like on display over the past two years is any grand strategist nightmare. And I think it shows the extent to which our, um, our society has, has decayed. Um, and I think this is, it's actually, it's interesting to, and I'm really glad we got we got shunted onto this path because this is something that I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, you know, if you if you look at the um, like the Beltway area think tanks and the way that they describe China, um, I think for a lot of people they view geopolitical conflict as like a Deus ex machina um, because of the way that we rose to the occasion in World War II. Um, I think there's there's a general sense in a lot of people that like if only we had like a valid geopolitical rival, we would all like band together and set aside our differences and like come back together. Like it was December 8th, 1941, or, you know, maybe even September 12th. But, but the reality I think is that even if we were thrust into a conflict like that, it would just accelerate our, our, um, our decline. Um, and that's because social capital, you get into, um, cyclical dynamics with it. Um, if you have a high social capital uh, society, um, like we did on December 7th, 1941, um, when there's a systemic shock, people come together to fix it, and that, that actually increases your social capital because, you know, you emerge from your war victorious, um, and, um, uh, you know, people trust each other, and people have just suffered with each other, and that, that creates a sort of social cohesion that's difficult to replicate but on the other hand if you go into a conflict embittered and angry and divided and you suffer setbacks and you fight about whose fault it is um and then you lose you've just you've just made your situation that much worse um so i think it's it's normal and natural um to be restless um but to the extent that that people are looking for geopolitical conflict i think it would be it would be suicide at this point um and um, a lot of the options on the table are kind of neoliberal uh, pipe dreams, so to speak. They think they think that you know they're the next Douglas MacArthur. They're not. 
Yeah, that's that's abundantly accurate. Um, and when you take a look at the two conflicts that are constantly being fantasized about, both are clearly not going to happen. For those people who are fantasizing about a second civil war in this country, well, it's not the 1860s anymore. So it's not going to be just two groups of people and from different parts of the country just shooting at each other. No. The nature of the military-industrial complex has it that it's sort of a winner-take-all scenario and it's going to be a kind of proxy war that's fought behind closed doors that you're probably not going to hear about. Um, the smaller skirmishes within, within the military, within this country, that you probably won't hear anything about till after it happens. And you wake up in the morning and have the coffee and say, oh, that's what's happened. Much like the way the FBI and the Pentagon are strangely, strangely disclosing things about UFOs and other topics of that nature. And the other side of things, when it comes to a global conflict, we're sort of playing chicken in this... We're fighting more of an economic war, if you take a look at the situation in Africa, and just the general trade war with China. And when it comes to the military, their standards are greatly slipping, and there's a lack of social capital even within the military now. Now you look at China, they got their asses handed to them in the northern provinces by the Indians uh, about a year ago. And the Russians have a long history of never-say-die attitude, which has served them very well over many centuries of conflict. So like you said, that's not really going to get us anywhere either. It's strange, the situation needs to be a lot more surgical, it needs to be both micro and macro. And there's no real common enemy for all the American people to fight against. So America and the West in general almost has to keep looking inward. And maybe that's interesting and easier for countries in Europe that have the social capital that can say, yes, we're British, or yes, we're Polish, or yes, we're French. We're seeing that now with a lot of current political movements, but with the United States, it's completely up in the air. Do you think there's any way for the United States to look inward that will soften any damage as it goes on or are you basically saying you don't know how this movie ends <laughs> well i think anybody who suggests that they do is probably at some point trying to sell you something um probably. but i um uh to the extent that i have policy prescriptions um it's to decentralize uh i think that you know Arguing over Roe v. Wade with somebody from like North Dakota who you're never going to meet and have no incentive to be nice to um, is never going to be a winning proposition. Uh, whereas, you know, if you have a, a debate over zoning laws with like Dan the Butcher, who you need to like go to to get meat every day, like, of course, you're going to have to be a little bit more civil. Um, so I think that that to the extent that we can, um, uh, you know, get these national hot-button cultural debates out of the spotlight, we should. Um, and that's sort of why I, I advocate for not really watching the news, uh, not even going on these, like... I think a lot of a lot of people on the right end up in these, like, kind of rage porn sites where they're like, look at these, like, like degenerate liberals who are, like, trying to, like, like make your kids into, you know, uh, non-binary, like, whatever. And it's just, that's just, like, not a productive way to spend your time. Like, getting mad at people who you don't know, doing things you don't understand. And, um, I mean, if, if something, I mean, if I don't know. If you've got a teacher in your kid's school 
trying to make them non-binary obviously that's that's something that you should address but for the most part like you know this is all just like it just serves it, it's it's spinning your wheels um and it's 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 better uh to really really kind of tap out of the culture war um and focus focus more on like what you can do in your immediate surroundings and i think that would that would sort of at least stop the rot um and probably begin the healing process that makes yeah that makes sense to me for the most part i think like you said alex jones or 4chan sort of rant threads about things that are actually happening that are not good for society but constantly obsessing with them and constantly fueling your own anger that goes to nowhere will accomplish nothing but further destroy yourself and probably your surroundings to be honest but yeah yeah i, I, I think mean like the, the the practical application like you're saying of the, of the culture war i mean i think people still need to sort of fight in the culture war but not with just writing things online or saying this is happening saying well, since this is happening locally, I'm doing this to change it so this doesn't happen in my community and showing people that it's possible. Now you're actually sort of punching with some weight in the culture war instead of just shouting at each other. Yes, exactly. And look at the response you get from the people who are invested in continuing the culture war when you do that. I think the most immediate example is the school board meetings, right? Like, you parents start showing up to their school board meetings, which they should have been doing the whole time anyway, and administrators lose their minds. <laughs> like, 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 they're, like, I mean, like, this is obviously something that they really don't want to have happen because that's exactly, like, where you can really affect change. Posting, like, angrily on Facebook is never going to change anybody's mind. Showing up to a school board meeting and, like, letting them know that their jobs are on the line. Like, yeah, no, they're, like, they're upset about it. They should be upset about it. Logistical skin in the game is, is increasingly more noticeably make or break. I mean, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and in San Francisco, you have uh, indoor indoor dining vaccine mandate. Same thing with gym. Does my gym ask for my vaccination status? No. Do the places <laughs> I go to in San Francisco ask for my vaccination status? No. Thank God. But... It's, it's, it's that local skin in the game where it's like these are people you see every single day. These are dynamics that you have to deal with every single day. It becomes more real, and the psyche is a lot more settled that way. That vitality is, is honestly make or break on a micro, and that turns into very quickly into a macro. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that is really, that's, that's, you know, on the level of, of neighborhoods, and personal connections and families that's where that's where the really important battles are fought and won absolutely in terms of to take a quick aside back to your background um one thing i mentioned in introducing you is that now that we're seeing because and taking it aside with an aside after speaking with arthur kwan lee on a podcast that i recorded with him um, we sort of discussed that the reestablishing of order, the reestablishing of true centralization comes with decentralization. But after an icebreaking discussion that our esteemed guest that I had, um, I got to know a little bit more about him, and he had very idealistic views of politics. And once he sort of got up close, 
Um, you found himself deeply disappointed and needing to adjust. The ideals are still wonderful, but he has more practical applications. So um, to the extent that you're comfortable with sharing, um, can you share with the listener your sort of progression towards how you got to where you're at right now and what you write uh, in terms of what you write on your current page? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, um, being as like hand wavy and vague as possible, um, I had always like really admired um, uh, elite universities. I like I thought that they were like the greatest thing since sliced bread and that like they were all like staffed by brilliant people who knew what they were talking about. Um, and I like I, I worked as hard as I possibly could to get into one and I did. Um, and it was about the most disappointing experience of my life. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, all of these people who I thought, like, were, were, like, coming up with, like, ways to solve the problems of the day were, like, really, like, like looking for jobs at McKinsey. Like, so, so, so that was a little bit of a reality check when it came to how much you can expect out of the people who have nominated themselves to lead you. Um, and then I've also spent um, a good deal of time, like in and around the the federal government, um, and have come to the same conclusion. There, um, it's you know, it's there. There are people there who are um, there to make a difference, uh, and I admire and respect those people. And you can find them on both sides. Um, and often they have like very compelling stories um, and like very good reasons to believe the things that they do. Uh, but they are far, far outnumbered by the people who are, like, spending time there between undergrad and law school and just, like, looking for, like, a little bit of a resume boost. Um, to say nothing of the actual, like, members of Congress and politically appointed um, administrators, administrators uh, who really just, just, you know, I'd say nine out of ten, just there for the paycheck uh, and for the speaking engagements and for the for the lobbyist dinners, uh, which are actually like, like absurdly nice. Um, um, so if you want to, if you want to be taken out to steakhouses, run for Congress is my advice, but, um, in a, in a more, in a more serious, uh, sense, um, I, and it's not that I think that like electoral politics are like, like a, a charade. I don't, I don't really take the Marxist view there, but I definitely do think that you're, people's time is much better spent like closer to home for the most part um mm. yeah so that that that's that's my that's my origin story <laughs> so i hear the disappointment part but what are some of the things that made you cultivate your current way of thinking like like details that maybe you were reading or ideas that Maybe you were meditating on or some practices that you've recently cultivated that basically gave more practical engine to the ideals that you held for such a long time. And would hopefully establish those ideals on a macro scale. Like, what was that transition like? I'm, I'm so, so, and this is a very mundane story, um, which, which I guess makes sense to, for coming to a, a mundane kind of system of thought. Um, but this was actually, the, the, this account had its genesis in the pandemic when I was really bored. <laughs> um, and I am, um, I am, you know, very fortunate to have grandparents still around. Um, and, uh, when the pandemic hit, we kind of had a family powwow, 
um, and decided that somebody ought to stay with the grandparents and make sure that they could get their groceries, et cetera, because uh, we didn't know how bad it would be. Um, we also thought it would be for like two weeks because um, we listened to Anthony Fauci. <laughs> um, and, so, and so I ended up um, uh, spending uh, the spring and a good chunk of the summer of 2020 uh, with my grandparents and, and spending time with them in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and, you know, going out in my, like, in my hometown's, like, local community in a way that I hadn't before. And between, you know, conversations with my grandparents, which I immensely value and, you know, in my opinion, were almost worth the lockdown um, in, from my, you know, my personal experience. Um, and, you know, being being back and not having a lot to do except read my grandparents' library, um, you know, I really... And you know, it's 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 not it's not a particularly romantic story. It wasn't some like traumatic event or you know a religious epiphany. But but you know, then again, I'm not really advocating for traumatic events or religious epiphanies. I'm advocating for people to spend time with their grandparents. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's more the story that people need to hear, um, and it reflects the piece that you read at the beginning of this podcast that really reflects your logos, ethos, telos, you know, all of the above. That really sums up the fact that this is going to take millions of mundane, seemingly meaningless choices in day-to-day life that have much more of a ripple effect than you could possibly imagine. It's not always going to be this super intense religious Campbellian experience. You know, sometimes it's not that deep. Uh, any of my regular listeners are going to be hearing this, are going to be like, what? Because that's typically my wheelhouse. Basically the opposite of what I just said. But, um, <laughs> but that being said, there's, there's still a daily discipline. There's still a daily strength to be cultivated preserved and built upon over time, in this particular case, social capital. And hopefully some reflections of that, like hopefully a return to neoclassical architecture, more of an emphasis on regenerative farming, and uh, the destruction of Bill Gates. How about that? Um, Yes, those are all noble goals. (laughs) (laughs) If I I saw those three in my lifetime, I would be a truly elated man. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and I, trying, I, I'm, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> I was, just, I was going to say, you know, by no means do I mean to suggest that, that religion doesn't play a part in this. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I am a very religious person, um, and I, I kind of came to the faith voluntarily. Um, my, my parents were atheists. Um, I was not brought up going to church. Uh, it was something that I, that I was drawn to. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly, I, I see when it comes to like, you know, the socio-political standpoint, I see the value in church, not, not in the great mystery, but in the way that it brings people together. Um, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm less about the, uh, <laughs> less about the initiation and more about the potluck dinners. And <laughs> the potluck. <laughs> yeah, those are some pretty fantastic potlucks, depending on the kind of faith. I mean, some, some forms of Christianity are all about the donuts and some are about the 
truly wonderful cultural mainstays. And I think that's uh, I think that's another good aspect to bring up too, um, or the religion. And I'd love to hear your your thoughts on the natural human need to worship something higher. Um, you look at communism or any, any hostile takeover, what happens? They want to control three things almost immediately. They want to take away all guns so you can't defend yourself. They want to control the food supply so you need to rely on the state for food. And they want to abolish religion so you can't worship anything higher than the state because again, there's an innate human need to worship something higher. So if the highest thing is the state, then the state's properly in control. Um, as far as religion itself goes, we could get into the great mysteries um, and the day-to-day -day worship and progressions that come with that, but I'd actually love to hear your thoughts on the innate human need to worship something higher and how that can bring people together and actually, I would imagine, um, contribute towards building social capital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the first thing that you said there is is, is a very prescient point um, that, you know, man is a religious animal and, you know, we will always believe in something. Um, and, you know, some of the earliest posts on my account um, were about the spiritualization of politics. Um, you know, when, when religion recedes from public life, it doesn't leave a void. Um, or at least, you know, it doesn't leave one for very long. Um, it's been it's been filled by a by a uh, you know a devotion um, to to a political creed um, in in a way that that you know in in bygone eras was really only reserved for religious faith. Um, and so, and that that is you know extremely damaging because it teaches you to view the, the other political camp as as you know a transcendent enemy um someone to be you know fought and defeated on not just on a physical but on a moral battlefield um and that is you know it goes without saying that is that is a profoundly unhealthy devi uh, development for a society and for a democracy in particular um and you know you can go into the genesis of this i i I, I think it's, you know, this this sort of confrontational politics um, began to rear its head, uh, you know, on the radio talk shows of the 60s and the 70s, just as organized religion was, was entering into a free fall. Um, and now it's reached kind of a, um, I hesitate to say terminal because I don't know how long it will go on, but it's reached, it's reached a very critical phase um, where... You know, we're, we're, we're starting to see, um, and this, this week has been very much on display, we're starting to see violence um, done for political ends um, in a way that, that our justice system sometimes struggles to handle. I think that's growing, again, increasingly accurate. Um... I mean, the violence comes in waves. I mean, as, once again, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, I live in Oakland in particular, and last summer with the George Floyd riots, the city was set back probably 20 years. Um, as far I mean, as far as the crime rate is concerned, the crime rate is now worse than its heyday back in the early 90s. There's a homicide roughly every 36 hours now. I mean, this place has always had a reputation for theft, um, but it's it's further skyrocketed. 
And it's very sad because pre-COVID, Oakland looked like it was about to truly flourish. The place is, much of it is still boarded up and there's a lot of homeless encampments and crazed crackheads running around. It's, it's very sad to see. Um, this, this notion of the other party is Satan at all times, I really have no interest in, you know, with a few caveats, obviously, a few truly morally black and white issues. But the whole, the other side is Satan, the other party is Satan, because they disagree with me, it's just absolutely asinine, because usually you're not dealing with a whole party, you're dealing with aspects of a party. And I mean, you know, you and I won't get into the, the two-party system, because that's a whole soapbox that you and I could get into for at least four hours. But with that dynamic in place, I mean, the... The whole other side is Satan, no matter what they say, is the most detrimental and emotionally fueled standpoint that you can take. Because you have to take in you have to take into account every detail that the opposition is is vocalizing or pushing or what have you, and whether or not that's just the majority of the other party or maybe that's a faction within the other party that's quite a bit louder than the rest, the remainder of that party. So this. That approach is just adding more emotional fuel to the fire that really does isn't showing any signs of cooling down at any point. And being, you know, <laughs> embodying that whole mug everyone will not explain the other side, you know, it's it's great it's great for, you know, a laugh from right wing bodybuilder memes, but it's a very detrimental course of action. Or is that detrimental temperament to embody when it comes to rebuilding social capital as a whole yeah absolutely um and to your point about the the two-party system it's especially ludicrous in america um where you know and i've talked in my page about you know how in a liberal system you know small l liberal um the state begets the market and vice versa whereas you know they're often portrayed as oppositional forces in reality they they necessitate one another um and so you know the the political parties in contemporary america are just two horns of the same dilemma um that's not to say that they're the same it's you know it's obviously like a very immature analysis of the situation but but you know it's not really we're not in a life or death fight by any means um and pretending like we are is, you know, it's crying wolf um, as people with, with um, you know, truly sinister motives uh, kind of slip by. Um, and it's exhausting people um, in this fight about, I don't know, like some of the some of the battle lines that have been drawn are absurd. You know, you know, why people are arguing that income inequality is a good thing is, is, is beyond me. Um, and, you know. Why people are arguing that, like, you know, the the Second Amendment should be radically curtailed because it like makes people uncomfortable, like that. That just so there's there's like uh, you know, <laughs> if not, not not to get too dragged into it, but like I don't know if you thought that like the U.S. was like a systematically racist and violent institution, wouldn't you want to have a gun just in case? <laughs> yeah 
Uh, I mean, so, you, you, you see you see people on both sides, like, arguing points that are completely contradictory to each other. And if you begin to slightly mention that to them, one of two things happens. Uh, I, I, like, and quite honestly, if you present this to someone who can defend themselves and hold their ground, they're like, I actually, yeah, I'm starting to see your point. If not, then it's usually just met with fury and blind rage. It's, it's very strange. It's like, I, I tell people, no, I... Oh, you just want to shoot people up. Like, here in the Bay Area, too. Like, the, the takes on guns like, just literally die laughing at people as they say them. And I say, no, I want you to be able to defend yourself, too. And when, when I say that to them, they're like, oh. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, again, it's not that deep. Yeah, this, no, this, I this, think. There's this, this no grand plan here. Like, everyone should have that sovereignty. I want you to make those decisions for yourself. You're not a crazy person. I'm speaking to you right now. It's very simple yeah yeah i think honestly like one of the best lifestyle choices i ever made was just to stop arguing with people about politics now when i when someone like you know at a party tries to talk to me about politics i like smile and nod doesn't matter what they're saying you just you, you look at them and you're like you are absolutely right have a great day <laughs> it's just i mean it's not worth it <laughs> nobody nobody ever wins an argument um, there's a little couplet that I like. I think it's, I think it's Wordsworth, but I can't quite remember. It's, um, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm. So, you know, even, Ooh, even if you wonderful. like, yeah, even if you fax and logic somebody into like conceding your point, he's just going to be pissed off at you uh, and dislike you. And then, you know, like in the shower that night, he's going to be like thinking of things that he could have said and like, just keep his old opinion. Like, so, so yeah, so I, I just, you know, I've, I've come around to, to, you know, civil discourse is a healthy thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk to each other, but, but, you know, there's a time to do it. There's a time to, to smile and not, you know, you, you, you should have a read on people, whether or not they're having a discussion or they're just looking for a yes man to reinforce the point. And honestly, when people are looking for a yes man, it's an emotional need. It's an emotional neediness of something outside themselves because they don't really know what to think. Like, that is, that is the dynamic every single time. So if, if you know it's one of those people, then, yeah. You're like, I think beavers should have supremacy over half the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, sure, whatever, man. Cool. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, it does, it, like you said, it really doesn't matter what they say. But if people are actually trying to have a discussion, then, you know, proceed surgically. And maybe they'll teach you, maybe they'll tell you an angle that you never thought of. Like that growing yes. perspective is always a very healthy thing with people who are willing to partake in a mutual exchange of growing perspectives. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, and when those conversations do happen, they're some of the most interesting ones that you'll ever have. Uh, and they're incredibly valuable. Um, and the, tr the trick is to be very discerning about where and with who to have those conversations. Um, Absolutely, and it's 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 you know it takes some trial and error. Sometimes you get locked into a conversation with a crazy person, or you know end up in a debate with somebody who's not going to change their minds. But like you know, those those good faith people are out there, uh, and talking to them is is a restorative experience. They're they're far more common than people realize. And actually, the two the two people I mentioned before, a lot of the time they're the same person. It just depends on the mood, the given circumstances that day. Sometimes they are the, I, I want a yes man, like, 
and then and then there are days where they're calmer and maybe they had an easier day or whatever the what the circumstances are, and then they actually are the person that we're trying to have a conversation. I would actually say I would argue the majority of people at some point in their day or their week are willing to have that conversation. You just need to be a bit more intuitive as to know when it is that they're in their mood or when it is that you should probably be clear. Um, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I think you've got to beware a little of like evangelizing your political position. Like it's, you know, people will, people will come around. Um, that's, that's sort of, that's why I started this page. Um, because I have an abiding faith that people will come around. If I'm saying something that's, that's, that's worth being said, people will listen. Um, and if not, then they won't. <laughs> It'll exactly. all sort yeah. itself out. I mean, in, in, in my personal opinion, I think you're the best essayist uh, within this sort of sphere of Instagram, honestly. I remember first, the, first, the first piece I saw of yours was the, the 68 that everyone shared. I think Josh Rainer Goldstein shared it. It was the guy. Um, and I read the bulk of your work, and I thought it was fantastic. Um, well, thank you, you for a, saying that. Absolutely. You, you weigh so many factors and so many angles that most people wouldn't think of. Um, you, you sort of flip um, each opposite on its head, so the opposite actually becomes its counterpart opposite, if that makes sense. Um, like, you, yeah. you usually typically hear, like, the, oh, I'm a... I'm a fiscally Repu- I'm fiscally Republican and socially Democrat, but you're essentially in a bunch of dynamics doing the, oh, I'm fiscally a Democrat, socially a conservative. Like you're doing the more uncommon side. You're weighing all these factors and you're doing it surgically and nuanced. And when there's a space of something you don't understand, you don't you don't force the issue. You just leave that open to interpretation, or you leave that ongoing, which is which most people wouldn't even be capable of doing because they would just insist that they know when they don't know. It's definitely that that has frustrated a lot of people. Um, I get a lot of comments <clears throat> sometimes that are like, "You're kind of beating around the bush. Um, you don't really come to a conclusion." And I'm like, "Yeah, yep, <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Yes, I do. because I don't have one right now." <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm really, I'm, 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 you know, I'm in the final stages of of, of setting up the website that I promised. Um, uh, you know, it's it's there's technical problems on technical problems, but it's coming, and I'm really looking forward to that um, because um, I'm actually not a huge fan of the infographic format. Getting like long form essays out there, I think, will 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 be a real help to me. I'm I'm very much looking forward to to transitioning at least partially to that format. I'm certainly looking forward to that as well. I I, I hope that people's attention spans will adjust to long form because there's some sometimes personally where i've written long form things they're like yeah we want more long form and then I'm like really okay this is coming from the twitter generation interesting and then you give them more long form like yeah it's not long i was like yeah <laughs> yeah that's it's, what you asked for <laughs> literally long form yeah that's correct um i would love to touch upon localism and some more actionable advice because getting the sense speaking to you and this is kind of a belief that's been emerging within my mind i think a lot of other people's minds as well that it's first we've been seeing the the reaction to the pandemic and the reaction to the issues of the political system been a lot of reactive like man i I gotta get out of here i gotta get to wyoming or southern alaska or some remote place and everyone can leave me alone i love the homestead dream it was just like okay 
you know, it's not really going to solve anything, but whatever. Um, <laughs> like more, I'm, I'm up for more sovereignty. I'm up for people owning guns. I'm, open, I'm super, I advocate for people growing their own food, for having their own animals, all of that. That's fantastic. But it doesn't stop there. You're not an island. Like maybe, maybe if you really, if you're deeply antisocial to the point where you want to go live in an island in Oceania, whatever, fine. But that eventually needs to go back into society. That change, that putting your money where your mouth is, localism, needs to, and it will eventually rise to the top. I actually firmly believe that. You're creating a new foundation through decentralization that will eventually become the norm, and it's certainly seeming that way. If people in Oakland, California, who were in those marches last year are beginning to tell me as I am bartending to them that they need to buy a gun and that they need to get Gavin Newsom out of office, I'm like, oh, okay, well, the only place potentially worse than this is Portland, so this is a very interesting change that I'm hearing right now. But eventually it needs to go somewhere, and you, you released several posts on this, one that was more definitive than the other, but you also touch upon in another infographic, the, the actionable advice that, that you would prescribe to people on a micro scale that would eventually help the macro scale. Like what they can do every single day. Yeah, I mean, and it's sort of become a running joke on my page about community gardens and, and hating lawns and stuff. But that that really is, <laughs> I think, I think um, like a, a great place for people to start um, because a lot of people do own a lawn. Um, and it is like really easy to spend a weekend putting a garden in. Um, and it's also pretty easy to like get people on the block involved. Um, the, the number of people who don't talk to their neighbors always astonishes me. Um, because I think that should be like your first support network. That should be like, those should be like after your immediate family, those should be like the people who are like in your life um, who you can like call, like not only if you need a cup of sugar, but I don't know, like a, like a ride to the hospital or something like, you know, things come up. Um, and that, that like immediate support network is incredibly important, I think, for, for stuff like that and for self-actualization. So anything that gets you um, more involved with your neighbors is something worth doing. Um, uh, and so a lot of, a lot of um, you know, what I... Um, what I prescribe comes from that. And then a lot of stuff, like some, something that I've, I've been leaning on a little bit more recently that has been a little antithetical to what a lot of, a lot of other people are saying is that you should like, go have fun too, like make friends, go to parties. Um, I would never condone underage drinking. Of course, it's illegal. You should never do anything illegal, but if it were to happen, yeah, no, if it were to happen, I would not, I'll leave it there. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's like a, there's a serious like anti-fun mindset problem um, amongst people who are like dissatisfied um, with, with the way things are going currently because they identify, they conflate fun and like hedonism and they see people who, you know, are drinking their lives away or who have no goals and ambitions and and they say oh it's because they like you know it's because they drink or because they go out with their friends when you know that it, that's a healthy thing to do in moderation having a social network is uh like an actual social network not like a zuckerberg social network is is really important um and so you know 
that that's 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 essentially that's the that's the bedrock of my of my practical advice is get involved with your neighbors, tell like your family that you love them, have fun with your friends, um, and find ways to give back to your community. I think one one piece of actionable advice that I gave because it's easy is. Um, I don't know if you have an iPhone, but iPhone users get like a weekly screen time report where every, every I think Sunday, um, you get a little notification that says like you spent X amount of time on your phone. And I think for most people, like every day, and I think for most people in our generation, that number is somewhere between like four and six, uh, which is like a lot of time. And so, um, you know, one thing that I told people to do explicitly is take that time and cut it in half. And that's like the new amount of time you spend daily on your phone. So if you spend four hours a day on your phone, usually, you know, make commitment to spend two and take the other two hours that would have been on your phone and do community service, volunteer with your church. Um, It's really easy. People are always looking for volunteers. Um, It would take you about 10 seconds to like find somebody who's, who's looking. Um, And, you know, that's, it's a, it's a simple way to get involved and you spend, you know, 10 hours a week um, picking up trash. Like that's, that's, I'd go as far as to say that that's like a noble undertaking as, as mundane and, 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 you know, demeaning as it is. That's wonderful. I I think the initial response, a lot of people would say, this is that last bit, that last specific detail or task. Like, well, it's just going to get dirty again. Like, okay, then never clean your room, never clean your kitchen. Like, it's just, again, the running theme of this entire podcast, but it's for reason, is micro to macro. Um, it doesn't actually take that many people to care for the community. It, 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 and honestly, it takes one catalyst for get, for people to care about the community. No one wants to be the catalyst. Though. That's a, that's a big that's a big cliche. Like no one wants to be the change that they want to see in the world, but it's, it's true. It's a cliche for a reason. Um, yes, and your absolutely. Point about your point about fun as well, I mean, like, that's alien to me because I live a overly disciplined lifestyle because I'm trying to be a world champion fighter, so it's like that demands everything. So when someone, when someone has to be like, hey, man, you want to hang out? I'm like, I don't know what that means, man. Actually, you know, I'm just going to say yes. You're probably not going to see me in a sense. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> because you're going to ask me to vaguely hang out one day and I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm busy getting kicked in the face and then lifting weights and then reading and then probably writing and then eating and going to sleep. Um, but for most people, I mean, most people will have a healthier work-life balance. Like, they'll have a, a, a calling in their life that isn't going to demand everything. And that is very healthy. Like, you don't, you don't have to abuse the substance to have fun. You don't need to engage in risque behavior to have fun with to build community like that's a very healthy aspect that you mentioned and especially for men too when we talk about the four archetypes of men king warrior lover magician like a lot of people surprisingly neglect the lover archetype like the fun of things like being enthralled with things absolutely healing and it's a glue for people and again travels up to the macro yes absolutely it is like it is not a bad thing to have fun Having fun is, is, is important. Um, and I think, you know, you've obviously committed to a very difficult path. And that's something that I respect and admire. Um, but, you know, for, for the overwhelming majority of people out there, 
um, you know, there can only be one world champion fighter. That's 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 kind of the point. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. And so I'd say for most people out there, um, you know, it, it's a judgment call. If you think that you've you've got what it takes to to train um, and and you know shoot for that gold, then by all means. But I think you'd probably be the first person to to tell uh, anybody that that that's a very difficult path to choose. Um, and you can find meaning and you can be a valuable member of society without being a world champion. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really, I think that's, that's where the magic happens. I think is, is, is in, is in the day to day for, for most, cause you know, society is not composed of world champions. Society is composed of, of, of people, just regular people. I agree. I agree. And, and those, those connections going back to social capital i mean you look at the force multiplier of restoring and building social capital that are festivals and countries like oktoberfest in germany and the cherry blossom festival in japan fourth of july in this country um that's a society that's a country having fun on a macro scale and that's a lot um it's actually a lot more. I would I would argue a lot more healing for social capital um, than the day to day mundane things that we're talking about, or conflict for a country to potentially emerge victorious from. So that's that's a big force multiplier for sure. That I think a lot of people are overlooking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, going back to my my early obsession with ancient Rome. Uh, Nearly half of the days in the Roman calendar were feast days for like party mm-hmm. and like <laughs> and like no work. So, <laughs> so it, it is perfectly possible to like build a world conquering emperor and all <laughs> empire and also, you know, go roast a, roast a pig with the boys. Mm, yeah, go roast a pig with the boys. That sounds awesome. Someone needs to put that on a t shirt, man. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. I'll ha- I'll have a uh, anti lawn merch and pro roasting a pig with the boys merch. <laughs> yeah, no, that'll be when when you launch totally not anacreon.com, that'll be like the big hot cake seller t-shirt that uh, will create a cult following. Um when you when you actually when you talk about work by the way, um there was one piece that you wrote that I it kind of arrived out of me. I was like, what? And uh, the piece was titled, You Really Shouldn't Work So Hard. And my, again, my first initial reaction when I read that was like, what? And then I read through the piece and I said, oh, okay, that, that, that actually makes sense. Would you be so kind as to clarify that thought to the listeners, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I, I have a lot of provocative titles. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll give you a sneak peek of my of the one that I'm dropping tomorrow. It's um, why capitalism is Christian, which I think is going to raise a few eyebrows. Um, so that's that's sort of um, I <laughs> I have I have one without getting too deep into it and having to defend myself. I have one infographic entitled "The Problem with Consent." Um, if if that sounds weird to you, please go look at it and read it. <laughs> so so it's a provocative title. I'm not saying not to work hard. Um, In a lot of societies over the course of, of, of history, the idea was not to spend your life working. I think the even the as going as far back as the, as the ancient Greeks, they were like very disdainful of 
of work. Um, they didn't think that it was like a way of fulfilling your, your kilos. Um, and, um, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, and, and it's only with um, sort of the advent of the industrial revolution that, that, that work became kind of the virtue that, that you know, um, that it is today. Uh, and you can see that in kind of the Victorian mindset. Uh, kind of cleanliness is next to godliness. Show up on time. Um, care about the time. That was, you know, um, the regimentation of time that came with the factory. Um, and that's kind of carried over into the way that a lot of people view self-improvement. I think people like, you know, people say like things like, you know, oh, I read a book a week. Um, okay, but like, do you or do you just, you know, flip through pages to get through the book and like so so it we've become like hyper fixated on this um like very material um way of measuring um you know personal growth uh and productivity and output um that that sacrifices kind of the we lose sight of the reason why we do those things um, and so that's why i say you shouldn't work so hard. Um, you should you should focus on on the things that that make you feel like a more complete, well-rounded, spiritually connected person. Um, and sometimes that you know involves a walk in nature. That doesn't produce any tangible products. Um, you can't put it on your LinkedIn, um, but it's nonetheless like extremely valuable. That's. That's wonderfully put. Um, and I, I love the, the LinkedIn part as well, especially being, again, here in the Bay Area with such an influence from Silicon Valley that's sort of the lack of a culture of reflecting a lack of a personality. It's the conversations you'll hear a lot uh, between tech folks or, oh, what do you do? Oh, you do this for this company. Oh, great. Oh, I do this for this company. Oh, really? Yes. I manage the marketing there. Like it's 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 again it's it's a lack of a personality, and it actually makes your point too because when you take a lot of people who are really good at their job, uh, you take them out of that environment, they actually don't have very much to say, and that's not a criticism of them to be perfectly honest, but it does speak on your perspective on life or lack thereof, because you're not as you said a whole complete spiritually defined human being because you've been reduced to really just one action which is your job and what happens when you take that action away it doesn't look so good and it grows increasingly concerning when you're sort of breaking down the psyche or the life of a human being who lives this kind of life and I mean on a personal to personal note too I mean I have a I've Again, something that requires so much of me fighting. Like, I call Monday the full, the full name as Muay Thai Monday because I'm in the gym for 10 hours. But, you know, I still try to see my parents. Um, you know, I try to see each of them at least once a week. Uh, I try to keep in touch, you know, genuinely keep in touch with my friends as best I can. I'm always reading. Um, my listeners know I'm doing a three-year Nobel Prize reading challenge where every 10 days I'm reading one work from one of the Nobel Prize winners in literature, but um, I'm really taking the time to read each work aloud. Um, 
I'm really taking the time to truly marinate on and understand and soak in all of the things, you know, both in the text and the subtext in, in these works so that I'm actually changed from reading them. I didn't just read them to go through the motions. I actually want to feel changed. I want to be changed. I want my perspective to grow and to shift. And that's the issue with a lot of people these days, whether it be on a micro scale individually or being sort of influenced by this kind of culture we're talking about of not actually doing things, not actually focusing on the being, not actually focusing on the self while doing these things, just speeding through the tasks. You're not actually changing your being. And it's, it's really an application of detachment, in, in my mind, in the wrong way. Detachment is very healthy for a lot of things, but I see detachment being used in practices where you should be completely focused and engaged and enthralled. And the way people are going about it now, in my mind, I think it's a sure pathway to insanity and identity crisis. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I think the kind of the the apotheosis of this um, is, a, is a Silicon Valley thing. It's, it's um, this this app that I um, I have several friends who like swear by it, and it just it like it instills in me this sense of like deep abhorrence. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Ten Percent. Um, no, no, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's so it's it's guided meditation, um, but the whole like. <laughs> <clears throat> the whole, like, well, the, the premise of the app is that, like, every session is, like, exactly seven minutes or something. Um, and it's like, yeah, you can, like, do this on your lunch break like in or in between meetings. Um, that just, I don't know. Something's, like, fundamentally wrong there. Meditation isn't something you do for seven minutes in between meetings. Like, if, if, if that's, like, you know, if your meditation's on a timer, then you're not meditating. You're you're trying to maximize your output, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not, it's, I'm not it's, crazy, it's, it's am fueling, I? It's... No, no, you're not crazy. You're absolutely right. It's kind of fueling that, that worker bee mindset. Um, you and I, um, we had a, in an icebreaker conversation uh, over the phone that you and I had you know, before recording this podcast um, that the listeners obviously did not get to hear that, we discussed how a lot of people really don't fully process everything that they're doing. Like there are people, and I'm sure you know people like this as well, uh, but there are people I know who are sort of up in their thoughts all the time. Like they're not actually living life. They're just constantly pondering. Uh, but we also know people who live all systems, go all the time, only action, and they'll go decades like that until they reach a point where they say whoa what happened in the past 10 20 years and we've seen we've seen some famous songs written about this dynamic and we see midlife crises happen due to this dynamic the so reflection is so important and meditation is so important and like you're saying like meditation being done always in these little seven minute blocks is just absolutely asinine like you're saying yeah, that's that's. I mean, pretty much every every career advice, every every good piece of career advice I've ever gotten has incorporated somewhere. Um, you know, you don't want to end up in one of those jobs where you put your head down and, and 
pick it up 10 years later and they're like, what, did, what have I been doing? You know, and I think that happens to a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, that was the that was the genesis of the, you know, don't work so hard. <laughs> we're, we're, I guess, I guess a, a fairer title would have been like work smart, not hard. Um, but that wouldn't have gotten nearly the level of clicks. <laughs> no, that, that also sounds like a tired title from every GQ magazine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. You got you got you got to colonize new ground. You can't you can't once once the liberals have gotten to a phrase it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> Although it looks like we still have Wojak. Like they tried taking Wojak but it didn't work. I'm pretty happy about that, to be honest. Um, I haven't I haven't been following that. Was that was that a was that a concerted campaign? You know, you saw liberals trying to use Wojak memes, but it's just not very funny with it because they actually try to like give you some like layered message of tolerance or something and you're like that's not what a wojack meme is there it's like so ingrained to be the opposite of that but it didn't work it was great yeah i think um, when you when you try to appropriate like another subgroup's humor um you're necessarily going to be like self-conscious about it and that's probably a handicap <laughs> that's that's very very well put actually um <laughs> But yeah, I mean that that, that outrage, that, that outrage. But I was like, "What? What do you mean you shouldn't work so hard?" That was quality clickbait. Um, <laughs> you, you you should you have seen the. the uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yes, yeah, so you sh- you should have seen the outrage. The just the 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 grist mill that was the problem with consent post. Oh Jesus <laughs> I don't want to imagine. Like, uh, I'm sure someone drew up some kind of Nazi origin for your lineage. Like, not even yeah, like I got, I got a lot of people being like, um, um, I got, I got one, <laughs> I got, I got one. I'll, I'll preserve their anonymity, but I got one message from a, um, like a, like a fairly well-known like leftist page um, that was like, I initially followed you because, and I remember this. What initially what they said because I had no idea what any of it meant, um, and I had to like go look all of it up. So I, I and this, this was like months ago, and I still like it's like seared into my memory because I was like, it's just it's like the it's still the, the single best example of like terminally online like internet speak I've ever experienced. But he said like I thought you were like a Deleuzian uh, deep ecologist, but in reality you're just like ecofast trad calf. Um, like Spurg posting. I don't know what any of those things were, um, but that was <laughs> it was that was about the most indignant message I've ever received. Um, and again, if that if that if that infographic sounds questionable to you, please go read it. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah, again, that's some quality clickbait right there. <laughs> um, but but you said something really interesting about having to do something new. Um, an old roommate of mine who I bartended with, uh, he's an ex-Marine, um, you know, we're both writers. Um, he, he said something along the same lines uh, a while back, almost, you know, well, actually more than three years ago now. Um, I got home from, him, him and I both bartended till three. He would go home and uh, smoke cigarettes uh, with his girlfriend and drink gin and write. And I would go to the gym from about you know, four to six and I'd get home, and typically him and I, um, we'd be scribbling things on the whiteboard, you know, outlines of things that we're writing, or just, you know, scribble down paragraphs of prose. But I get home one, one night, 
and you know he's 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 had a few and he says to me oh i am so glad you're here can you please explain to her like pointing to his girlfriend that it doesn't mean a damn thing if you do a new take on something you have to do something new you know and i stopped and i thought about it and i actually think about this often when it comes to fighting styles and, and thinking about all the revolutionary fighters who just splash on the scene with a new style. You know, I'll, you know, I'll use, a, I'll use a, an example, more approachable example from sports ball, from any midwits who listen to this podcast somehow. Um, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Um, everyone knows, if, if you remotely know the sport of basketball, that Kobe Bryant was trying to be Michael Jordan. He was trying to out-Jordan Jordan. Played the same position. He was the same height. Uh, had a very similar mentality, although Kobe was a bit colder. Um, Jordan was more fiery. And since Kobe didn't surpass Jordan at being Jordan, um, a lot of people, they don't really compare him in the same light as maybe someone else who was great in a different way, like Magic Johnson or... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, and that was really interesting concept. Just, just in general. I mean, I, I again, I think of more of it in terms of fighters, like the revolutionary names that changed the game, like Sugar Ray Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, all very unique styles. But it's, it's very interesting to me this concept that you have to do something new, and it's interesting to me that you can't rush social capital, but you can give it new breaths of life with a new spin with almost a new advertising angle with a fresh new coat of paint a new perspective that really is the same thing I think if someone or a group of people or individuals day to day influencing the community around them on a local scale they can almost market these very traditional changes, these very traditional values as something new, we might get a bit of an acceleration when it comes to rebuilding social capital. I don't know if you think that's batshit or that maybe there's some truth to that. No, you actually, you, you, you've, you know, touched on something that's really important to talk about. And I actually, I, I want to make um, a couple of points about it. I think so the, the, the first is that um, a society that's very low on social capital um, tends to repeat itself in ways that are um, often quantifiable. Um, uh, but, you know, more often are discernible. Um, and you can see it in pop culture today. Um, you know, I'm blanking on the statistic, but I think it's like, you know, uh, 10 of the 13 biggest releases of the past year have been part of franchises. They've been sequels. Um, I'm talking about movies. Uh, and then uh, it's, it's like um, it's established uh, and it has been, you know, um, it's been proven that like the, the chord diversity in popular songs has been declining. Increasingly, if you like, if you think that like modern music all sounds the same, you're like, you're like not wrong. Um, uh, and even in like the biggest like like cultural moments of 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 the past uh, gener past few generations are um, 
are repeats of of stuff that has been um, that has already been done. Um, I'm trying to think of immediate examples. Uh, Superman being bisexual comes to mind. You, you know, you could have made a bisexual superhero, but you didn't. You took a superhero that's 80 years old and made him bisexual. Um, and that's like, that's, you know, that's the pattern for our template for what has been going on. Um, and um, probably the single biggest offender, which, which pains me to say because I'm a huge fan of it. It's my one like pop culture vice is um, Star Wars. Um, Star Wars started off as like a pastiche. I mean, um, George Lucas was very, very self-consciously taking like like the archetypical hero's journey and putting it in space. Um, and uh, I've been told. I mean, I haven't I haven't been near around nearly that long, um, despite being a dissension statue or whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, that. Um, it was a pastiche of a lot of things that were culturally relevant in like the mid to late seventies as well. Uh, and people like interpreted it as like a commentary on the Vietnam war or, you know, as, as, you know, pop culture from that era. Um, which means that like, not only are, you know, the, the plethora of star Wars knockoffs out there, um, uh, pastiches, but they're pastiches of a pastiche. They're, they're, you know, they're self-consciously replicating something that was a self-conscious like cultural amalgamation. I actually, I've never heard the word pastiche pronounced before. So I've, I'm, I may have, I may have been humiliating myself here with, with, with pronouncing it. I don't know if that's how you say it. Uh, it, it, it is. And if, if we're both wrong, then we could re-record. This <laughs> so, so that's, that's one thing is that societies that are, um, low on social capital, especially if they've been high on social capital in the relatively recent past, repeat themselves. Um, they're, they, they're endless repetitions with very slight variations on like a more culturally dynamic past. Um, because when, you, when you're low on social capital, you know, it's, it's, and, and artists are often like on the bleeding edge of, of the cultural moment. And I think that this rep this repetition is is an indication that a lot of artists and creatives out there don't really see a future um they see you know endless rifts on the past everything that's been that's everything that's worth doing has already been done i think is the mindset for a lot of people um and then the second point is that um you know i'm a firm believer that there are essential truths out there um, and there have been, you know, many, many societies um, that have, you know, risen and fallen over the span of human history. Um, and I don't think it's all because they've done something new. I think it's because they've taken, uh, you know, a fresh stance on something that that's actually very old. Um, and, you know, they've they've rediscovered these truths. Uh, they've, you know, they've, they've either risen from the ashes of a society that forgot them, um, or they worked it out on their own. Um, but in some, some way they came, they came to possess these like fundamental ideas about, about the human condition. And some have emphasized, you know, you've had very martial societies, you've had settler societies, but all of them are, you know, emphasizing some aspect of the human condition that's always been there. Um, and so... Uh, I made like a brief foray on my page into kind of creative writing. Um, I did like a speculative fiction series, um, and that's something I'm I'm really looking forward to to properly doing. 
um, on in long form, not an infographic for, uh, format. But I ended the series uh, about 300 years in the future with people um, sort of coming back to like an agrarian mode of living um, quite naturally, not as a result of a, of a disaster, but as a, you know, um, and I, I think I'm, I can't quite remember what the last line was, but it was something along those lines. It was something, you know, these people are living in a way that's like at once like new and very, very old. Um, and that's sort of, that's what I think people who are concerned about social capital need to emphasize is, you know, it's new, but it's, it's not, it's you're, you're, you're attempting something new in the context of, of our culture, but in doing so you're part of a long line of, people who have made you know who have accessed similar truths that's the best of both worlds honestly because there's the confidence that this is tried and true but but there's also the excitement from the novelty involved yes yeah and i think that's sort of that's that's what i think the difference between us and the 68ers is the 68ers smashed things the generation that came of age in 1968 or thereabouts was iconoclastic in the extreme. Uh, yeah. You know, the destruction that they've taken part in um, is almost religious, uh, and that's come out recently. It's been fueled by this idea that America's an evil place, and so we need to, like, we need to take out the idols and smash it. Um, much the same way, not coincidentally, that John Calvin smashed the Geneva Cathedral. It's a very Protestant impulse. We are a Protestant country. Um, BLM is a Protestant movement. Um, I guess we, we can elaborate on that here or elsewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but um, uh, I think that our generation, um, as a result of that iconoclasm, uh, has before it, um, you know, a task that's at once very difficult and much more rewarding. And than the one that the um, that that the sixty-eighters had, uh, and that's to create something. And creating something isn't easy. Um, no. It's it's and it requires the kind of sustained effort that that maybe the internet has has made us uniquely poorly suited for. But if we do it right, we have the opportunity to leave our mark in a way that the the quote-unquote greats of the past few generations can only dream of. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. Um, someone asked me in a Q&A about four months ago, what is required of our generation? And I said our generation is going to have to be far greater than the greatest generation ever was because we have such a tall order ahead of us. And we don't have that sweepstakes of World War II like like the greatest generation had, where we had that big conflict with a lot of things going on in our favor that was very winnable. We don't have that right now. It's an uphill battle. And it's it's an uphill battle that's won through the right decisions in the day-to-day -day mundane and the constant finding of inspiration through rebranding these older truths into new, exciting narratives to help inspire further correct and productive decisions in mundane day-to-day, -day, both for the sake of our given circumstances and our human need for something new. It's, 
it's a tall order, but at the same time, it isn't. It's, it's a white pill, and it's exciting, honestly. And funnily enough, you mentioned literature, and I know you have to go. I don't want to take any more of your time, but but I'd love to speak with you off the air about the novel that I'm currently writing that'll be released next year that touches upon this agrarian society uh, that you were earlier describing. But I know we have to go. I don't want to take any more of your time, um, but this has been a blessing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, and I'm, I'm re- actually really glad that, that we got to the point where we did at the end because that's sort of what I want to leave people with. That's, 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 you know, it's, it's, this is actually, it's, it's perfect because it, it comes full circle to the end of my piece, which is that, you know, this is not going to be easy work and it's not going to be fun work um, necessarily. It can be. Um, but it's work that, that, you know, it's, it's mundane heroism. It's, 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 it's work that gives us the opportunity to leave our mark um, in a way that I almost pity the 68 generation for not having um you know i think that history will look at them as small men um and if we if if, and you know if if we are successful if we rise to the occasion um and you know we 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 put in put in the effort um and we you know stay true to ourselves and to our communities um and we we show up consistently um, and, you know, build something, then history will have a much more favorable view of us. So I guess that's, that's what I would leave, leave the podcast with. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I hope we get the opportunity to do it again sometime soon. Uh, yeah, I have no doubt that this will not be the last podcast that you and I do together. I feel like you and I could do a number of episodes. Uh, you could be a, this sort of regular political analyst of the Blood and Rain podcast. Uh, we could very likely spend hours discussing uh, more specific topics. I, I feel like Before, we barely scratched the surface here. I agree. I agree. I think there are many, honestly, I think there are many more episodes in the future per our respective crazy schedules allow. <laughs> Um, before we go, how can people find you? Yeah, so my, my Instagram is um, totally not Anacreon. Um, I do most most everything through there. Um, in the coming days and weeks, I hope to have the website up. Um, that will be at the link uh, in that bio. So the Instagram is, is totally not Anacreon, uh, because I am totally not Anacreon. He's dead. <laughs> and if you need to know why that's funny, uh, do a quick Google search to find out who Anacreon was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let people draw their own conclusions there. <laughs> Just like the clickbait titles. <laughs> uh, but yeah, listeners, give Totally Not Anacreon a follow. Uh, be on the lookout for his long form content website. I know I will be because. Because he's the best essayist in this sphere, plain and simple. And until next time, listeners, good night and good storms. Thank you.